Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Douglas Starr will join us to discuss forensic science. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the field of forensic science has developed ever more refined and advanced methods for solving crimes of murder. Yet the advent of forensic science may owe in large part to one man, Dr. Alexandra Lacassagna, who was instantiated in the prosecution of the serial murderer Joseph Walker in the late 19th century. Uh, in his latest work, The Killer of Little Shepherds, author Douglas Starr presents this story, as well as a whole host of other fascinating developments that occurred in uh, 19th century France. Professor Starr is also the acclaimed author of Blood, an epic history of medicine and commerce, and he's the co-director of the Science Journalism Program and Center for Science and Medical Journalism at Boston University, and we're very happy to welcome you today to the Grok Science Show. Professor Starr, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. It's, it's good to be here. I have to say that this really is a very fascinating book, uh, The Killer of Little Shepherds, and when you talk primarily about the serial crimes of uh, Joseph Walker in uh, late 19th century France, I'm curious what drew you to this uh, topic? The science is what drew me in. I really like You know, I like geeky science, but I also like the big themes of science and humanity, and obviously this led me to science and justice, and I've seen all this stuff about CSI and thought, I wondered how it all got started. And this brought me to the 19th century, and I was in the basement of Harvard's uh, medical library one day, just going through journals, and I came over this case, and I realized this case was kind of emblematic of the early efforts in the turn of the century to really develop this new science. And up until this point, there really were no standard methods, or the advent of forensic science really was not really uh, very developed at that point. No. You know, it was the standard thing of rounding up the usual suspects, and slapping around until somebody said something, and then going from there. These guys, in, in the last couple of decades of the 19th century, and they were in Central Europe, France, Germany, Austria, Italy, the U.S. was... was decades behind was is these guys they called evidence the silent testimony and they thought they could use these new sciences of modern chemistry anatomy physiology psychology microscopy they could use all this to begin to reveal what happened by analyzing physical evidence this was a really a radical idea at the time yeah i mean it had evolved but it really came to its fruition in the last couple of decades of the 19th century and up until this point, a, a lot of the investigations were just sort of gross investigations of autopsies, as, as you put it, done on kitchen tables at, at times? Yeah, not very good. And, and even though in the countryside they still had to do autopsies on kitchen tables, Dr. Alakasanya, the hero of the book, and his colleagues standardized autopsies, so even those you know, had a possibility of revealing what really happened. So uh, I'm wondering if you can uh, set the stage for uh, the environment, the culture of what it was like uh, living in 19th century France. Mm -hmm. Part of the argument is that the crimes were in large part enabled by this environment. Yeah, yeah. It was a very interesting time. And and I think something that attracts all of us to the turn of the century was it was a lot like our own time. I mean, it was kind of the birth of the modern era. It was the birth of psychology. Freud was alive. 
Darwin was alive, Pasteur was alive. So all these wonderful sciences were flowering, and scientists were revered, and they really felt that maybe the use of science and medicine could be the answer to humanity's problems. So they even saw crime uh, as a medical problem that could be handled scientifically. The other similarities to our own period were tremendous prosperity with an undercurrent of poverty and despair. People were really worried about crime. There was a feeling of instability. Uh, there was an international terrorist movement. Uh, it was called anarchism. So it was a very interesting time. It was a time of great hope but great anxiety. Uh, in terms of Vache in the countryside, it was a time when the police forces in the cities were pretty competent. But in the countryside, it was anybody's guess, and things were pretty primitive. And so there's this sort of uh, split between kind of the haves and haves-nots, really. And industrialization had formed a lot, uh, forced a lot of agricultural laborers out of work. So all across Europe and across the U.S., there was massive unemployment. And it was before the social safety net, so rather than see these drifters as fellow citizens who needed a helping hand, a lot of people saw them as the enemy. Even in the U.S., you know, outside Chicago, uh, people were talking about posting signs saying you're not welcome here and even maybe killing uh, a hobo or two so and leaving the body so people would know not to come into Chicago. Mm-hmm. They were called the Army of Tramps in America, and in France they were called the Vagabonds. So it was a very interesting, unsettling time. And to top it off, this was the birth of the mass media. And while now we have cable and Internet and, and pundits, who all amp up our anxiety about things, then was the birth of the tabloid press. And they thought, you know, you put the crimes on page one and that gets the readers. So it was a pretty jazzed up time. Wow. A lot of people just became marginalized in, on the outskirts of society, really. Kind of drifting around, and this guy Vache was one of them. The only difference is in between getting farm jobs, he would kill a young person, mutilate the body, and then walk into the next district. And he did this for um, three or four years before he was caught. Uh, tell us a little bit about the story of Vache and uh, and the crimes that took place. I mean, in a sense, you talk about how they're apart with Jack Ripper, but really his crimes aren't really known. No. I mean, if you could say worse, he was worse than Jack the Ripper in the sense that Jack the Ripper killed five prostitutes in a particular neighborhood of London. Uh, Joseph Vache killed anywhere from 11 to 25 young people all over France. Um, I think he wasn't, he's not known now because the crime was solved, whereas Jack the Ripper remains a mystery. But he was probably a psychopath. You know, I interviewed modern psychologists to understand this guy. He was probably a psychopath, uh, wandered around and committed these horrendous crimes, kind of unseen. And that's why they called him the killer of little shepherds, because he realized if he stalked shepherds, this would be a young person away from any eyes, away from any witnesses, and, and it was they who he preyed on. It was really, really quite horrible. He proclaimed uh, insanity and then at some point proclaimed that God was directing him to do these things? Yes. And it's interesting because psychopaths are not considered insane now, and it's very difficult to find any case of a serial killer who's found insane. You know, in, uh, Milwaukee Jeffrey Dahmer's, for goodness sake, he ate people and he wasn't found insane. Uh, John Wayne Gacy outside Chicago killed all those kids. He wasn't found insane because, you know, they have the ability to plan and they're cunning. And Vesce was like that. He very carefully planned his murders and very carefully escaped. The interesting thing was after he escaped, whole villages would be thrown into post-traumatic stress upon discovering the mutilated body of a young person. And then they, in turn, would accuse one of their own. So you had this terrible collateral damage that was going on at the same time. Really, the courts were not prepared to deal with someone like Vachet, in a way. 
This was tough. I mean, the insanity defense was still evolving. Earlier on, they realized that not everybody who kills is sane, and, and if somebody who was clearly raving was on the stand, he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. But at this point, you know, it was the birth of psychology, and, and experts were realizing that somebody could appear rational but harbor insane urges. And, of course, this case, the reason I picked it, was not only sort of the poster child of brilliant forensic deduction and profiling and evidence gathering, but it was also one of the landmark insanity cases. And then after the case, of course, as you know from reading the book, they dissected his brain because this was also the, the birth of neuro, neuroscience. And they had the notion that perhaps there was a lesion or some other malfunction in the brain that caused people to behave this way. So even though in a way it's a crime story, it, it, it's just chock full of science tested the legal system of the time, and one of the characters, of course, is Emile Fourquet. Yes, Emile Fourquet, and this was fascinating. So you had this, this coterie of brilliant people in Europe figuring out this new science of forensic analysis and criminal psychology. And they had journals, scientific journals. They had meetings every four years. I was able to get all those journals, get the records of the meetings. Dr. Lacassagne left a library of work that I basically lived in. I found his descendants, so I was really able to capture this. One of the characters who appeared briefly was just a small city magistrate named Emile Fourquet, and although he wasn't a scientist, he followed the latest scientific methods. And there was a murder in his district, and unsolved, and he noticed a similarity to a murder in another part of France, and he had the idea, which turned out to be one of the first modern criminal profiles. So he sent telegraphs all over France to the magistrates and said, if you have any other un unsolved murders, send me the details. And if you've seen any drifters passing through, send me descriptions. Dozens of cases came in. He worked around the clock for weeks and weeks. He finally came out with two enormous charts. One was every characteristic of a murder, you know, how the body was, what weapon was used. The other was every characteristic of an unseen vagabond, an unknown vagabond. And then in blue, he circled all of the common characters. And then he, this was the first criminal profile, and he sent it out to all over France saying, if you have a murder with these features, and if you've seen a suspect with these features, be alert, this may be the man they call the killer of little shepherds. It was a, a brilliant piece of work. And then sometime later, this guy did turn up in a small town jail, and this jailer read the memo, and he got in touch with 4K and said, this may be the guy. He was captured by happenstance in a, in a way. Just by happenstance. He attacked a woman, and this time he miscalculated. He didn't realize that her husband was in the forest a couple of hundred yards away. The husband comes running out, and there's a huge battle. The villagers come running out, and they subdue him, and they tie him up and put him in a stable. And he goes and gets the cops. His, his murder spree had lasted for three years, completely undetected. He had been caught before for minor crimes and put in jail, but the law was so lax that he got out. So he's sitting in this small town jail figuring this time he'll get free. But as I said, this jailer read the memo, and he sent the telegraph to 4K saying, this may be a guy, what do you want me to do? And 4K writes back and said, send me a photo. And the jailer writes back and said, he's so frightening that the only photographer in town can't bring himself to point a camera at the guy's face. So 4K writes, well, just send me the prisoner and we'll, we'll see what happens. So the prisoner comes to the town of Belay where 4K is, and this begins an absolutely brilliant uh, interrogation, also based on the new psychological methods. So in brief, what happened is 4K tricks Vachet into confessing, 
And by the way, this was when, because of psychology, they realized that torture was absolutely inappropriate and counterproductive. He tricks him into confessing. Vache immediately starts acting insane, and that's when they bring in Dr. Lacassagne, the greatest forensic scientist of his day from Lyon, France. And Lacassagne, in the heart of the book, does a brilliant analysis of Vache's life, of his techniques, of his method, and in the midst of an incredibly crazy circus of a trial, it's Lacassagne's testimony that finally settles it, and the jury finds him guilty and not insane. And I talk to modern psychologists, even psychologists who deal with serial killers, and they say, they got it. They got it right. The birth of forensic science and a lot of the techniques that Lacassagne developed, you think they're still relevant today? Absolutely. The only few things I could think of that he didn't do was certain, I mean, they were doing blood spectrographic analysis. Uh, He figured out how to match a bullet to a gun, how to match certain knife shapes to knife wounds, uh, the correct way to do an autopsy, biometry, he and his colleagues. They didn't have DNA analysis and they didn't have fingerprints, but just about everything else that's done today is something that these guys uh, developed. How, how do you think that uh, popular cultures then grabbed onto this idea of forensic science at the time and then into the present era? Well, this is really interesting because we think now of forensic science and the CSI shows, and we all know those are science fiction and they're not accurate, and real forensic science is kind of complicated. But what was the CSI of the late 19th century? Sherlock Holmes. And the public loved it, and even Dr. Lacassagne loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. So much so that he had one of his graduate students write a thesis on how good is the science of Sherlock Holmes. And, of course, that's when things fell apart. You know, the biggest feature being that Sherlock Holmes never conducted an autopsy in his life. Also, Lacassagne and his colleagues worked in teams. You needed a chemical specialist, a toxicologist, an anatomist, an entomologist to analyze insect populations on the corpse. So... The public loved this kind of stuff, and it was always in the newspaper. And Lacassagne was an international hero. It, it's just kind of a shame that he disappeared. And I think we, we love that stuff now. And I think, first of all, is we love science. And second of all, is I think we love the notion that there are people with scientific expertise who could hold the forces of chaos and danger at bay. Don't you think that's something that has universal appeal? I, I believe so. It, it almost feels sort of the rational, overcoming this irrational act, which is murder in a way. Totally. And, you know, this killer was seen as a wild beast. And the late 19th century was one of the key moments in accepting the method of rational science, even though it had been developed earlier. And, and we love the notion, as you say, there are rational forces that keep things in order. And when you think of it, life mostly is orderly. Very few people kill other people or even hurt other people. And this was another thing that I found so wonderful in that these were the people who really started the whole nature-nurture debate, trying to figure out why would somebody do something such a thing? Could somebody be born this way, or is it due to their upbringing? And as you know, this, this debate continues to this day. Researching this, as, as you did, what is your impression or opinion of this? Well, clearly it's, it's a mix, but there's more of the nature than I realized. You know, Dr. Lacassani was involved in this great debate with the leading psychologist of his day, um, Dr. Lombroso, in Italy. And Lombroso was certain that there was something called the criminal type and that their brain had a certain malfunction and that people looked a certain way and you could recognize it when you saw him. Lacassani would do these demographic surveys and economic surveys, and he felt that it was circumstances. I always felt it was kind of circumstances, but 
in the last few years, there's been research coming out in which neurologists have done MRI scans of psychotics who are in prison, and they do find that the relationship among the various parts of the brain isn't what it should be. And the impulsive part, the amygdala, seems to be a little bit overreactive, and the rational part, the frontal cortex, seems to be a little underreactive. In other words, there may be people who have difficulty resisting the violent impulse. Now, interestingly enough, some of these people seem to do pretty well in the corporate world as well. (laughs) You know, the lack of empathy, the the feeling that I'm going to achieve my goal no matter what. But I just find it very interesting that there is an interplay between the neurology of the brain and behavior. And, of course, we don't know which affects which, but criminal behavior is certainly a complex phenomenon. There seems to be a biological tendency, and this is what they started discussing, what, 130 years ago. In that time, there was interest in phrenology, that there were just parts of the brain. Yep, and this is why they would dissect the brains of criminals. You know, this is when Hans Broca discovered that aphasia was linked to a particular part of the brain. And this is when that, I forgot his name, the railroad worker who, who, you know, the spike went through with the frontal lobe of his brain. Phineas Gage. Yes, Phineas Gage, it was then. So they knew that there was the localization of brain function, and it wasn't such a leap to think, well, is morality and reasonable behavior localized. So anytime somebody was executed, they would autopsy their brain. They also had uh, societies in which intellectuals would donate their brains to each other for autopsies as well, because they thought if criminality is determined by um, structure and function, maybe geniuses also. And again, the search for those answers continues. And certainly with modern methods, hopefully uh, getting closer to finding answers. Right, and now they could do scans instead of having to wait till somebody dies, which is a very nice thing. Hopefully preferable, I would guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you actually went through quite a bit of research to actually look at a particular story, going to locations and looking at these things. Did, did it somehow affect you uh, trying to piece together these stories? In any way? It did. I mean, it, it was four years of research, and as I mentioned, in addition to finding the courthouse where it took place and getting all the original records and photographing them. I found the asylum where for a while Vache stayed and found all the original psychological reports. Uh, I went to the villages and spoke to village elders. And then on the other side, I got to know Dr. Lacassagna, not only through the volumes of his research and cases, but I met his great-grandchildren who, who gave me boxes of his stuff. And then the other thing is, you know, after studying their methods, I thought it would also be necessary to sit in on a couple of criminal autopsies. And the Institute of Legal Medicine that Dr. Lakasanya established still exists, and they invited me to sit in on those. So that way in the book when I describe that kind of thing, it could be quite accurate. So in the question, did this affect me, yes, I'm not a true crime writer. Uh, I'm a science writer who got drawn into true crime because the science was so fascinating. And I will confess that I had a couple of nightmares. A criminal autopsy is a revolting thing. And and I also think that the doctors there were trying to put me to the test, and they'd say, oh, come, you have to look really closely at this, and and this is a common thing that happens. But it's disturbing material, but also inspiring material. Um, I can't say that for a minute of those four years I was anything less than, than fascinated. Clearly, forensic science has evolved quite a bit in the period since the late 19th century, but or how do you think our society compares now in that of the 19th century? And Have we evolved? To- you know, I think, I think we are evolved. I think certainly there's less racism. Uh, Dr. Lacassagna wasn't racist, but I think a lot of his colleagues were. They would jump to conclusions. But in a sense, we've devolved. One of the things that struck me about Dr. Lacassagna 
was he never stopped seeing criminals as human beings, even though he was their nemesis. And every Sunday morning, he would walk across the city of Lyon to the big prison, and he would chat with the criminals. And he gave them diaries, and they would write memoirs, and he would save them memoirs because he wanted to understand the criminal mind. And the criminals, in turn, grew to admire and even love him because he was the only person that was interested in what they had to say. And through this, he and other criminologists of the time were thinking very carefully about what incarceration meant and what rehabilitation meant. And even he felt that you shouldn't just lock somebody in a cage. One of the doctors at the time wrote, you know, thinking of crime in a medical model, he wrote, you know, we're physicians. Would we prescribe the same drug for cancer, a heart ailment, or a sprained ankle? He said, and yet we prescribe the same drug for the disease of crime, incarceration. He said, why don't we get more specific about that? And they were really actively talking about rehabilitation and restitution. And I'm sorry to say that it seems to me that we've left that discussion behind. And I think it's a discussion worth picking up. I would certainly agree with that. Uh, looks like we are running slightly out of time. I wonder if maybe you just have um, some final words to close on your book here, The Killer of Little Shepherds. These are fascinating characters. I wasn't attracted to the killer, but it was necessary to understand him. And, and you know, obviously he was self-pitying and, and, and felt wounded by society. I was particularly attracted to Lacassania and his brilliance and humanity. And when you think of the good this guy did and the good of his colleagues did, you know, so maybe they didn't invent germ theory and maybe they didn't invent psychology. But the science that they worked on, not only forensics, but criminal psychology, you know, in terms of the number of people who were no longer being falsely accused and the number of people who were put away as should be, and just this notion of making the human race more civilized, you know, I think their names should be up there along with Pasteur and Darwin and, and Broca. I, I think these guys were absolutely amazing, and one thing I hope to do with this book is bring them back to people's attention. Fascinating book. It's, again, called The Killer of Little Shepherds, A True Crime Story and the Birth of Forensic Science. Mr. Starr, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks. I enjoyed the chat. And you were just listening to Douglas Starr discussing the forensic science. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. If I can reach the stars Pull one down for you Shining on my heart So you could see the truth Then this love I have inside But for now I find It's only in my dreams And I can change the world I will be the sunlight in your universe You would think my love was really something good Baby, if I could It is time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Guilty or Innocent? 
So for the falling five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would uh, call them guilty or innocent, and maybe a little reason why. And those are the only two choices, huh? Or you can come up with whatever other verdict you feel like. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, render a verdict on these five people then. All right, person number one, Justin Bieber. Innocent. He started out on a path, and he can't help it what happened next. He just got swept up by the... Uh, I think so. You see you see how I'm using the compassionate approach? I, I do. And uh, so Am I, I right or wrong? You're the one rendering the verdicts. <laughs> oh, I thought I was going to be judged by the computer. <laughs> He's too young to be guilty. If this keeps going on in five more years, he'll be guilty. Okay. <laughs> so it's a temporary verdict. All right. Well, uh, how about number two, then? Uh, Tiger Woods. Guilty. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It'd be one thing if he was a pro, but if you're a pro with all those public endorsements and you're making money off your image, you got to guard the image. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, number three, then, is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Guilty. <laughs> he tries to downplay it by calling it a silly little show, but it is a debasement. So, yeah, guilty. All right. Uh, number four, it's the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think what he did on he did on purpose, um, and, and I like what I'm seeing. So, <laughs> now are we talking about the the sex case or the leaks case? The leaks case. The leaks case. Uh, for the moment, let's. He's not innocent because he did it on purpose. Um, guilty with extenuating circumstances. Okay, I, it worked I, for the greater good. Right. Right. <laughs> I assume your chuckling means you agree with me. I, I you don't, they'll be cold silence, right? <laughs> I'm always chuckling, so they're always, they're always fun answers. <laughs> uh, all right, well, number five then. Uh, finally, it's the former president of the United States, George Bush. Guilty. <laughs> Look, I'm from Massachusetts, okay? <laughs> Say no more, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, Mr. Starr, I want to thank you very much. Sticking around playing our game. And again, talking about your book, which again is The Killer of Little Shepherds, A True Crime Story, and The Birth of Forensic Science. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Well, this is Rock Science Show. I've been Charles Lee. And I'm Elise. And we'll be back into more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so uh, on the web. Our web address is www.grox.net. You can also email us at science at grox.net. And we're on Facebook. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>